Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, as we look at this uh, rather complex passage, yet dear Father, we pray for your word to be working powerfully within us so that we will feel the impact of who you are and that you are the one who controls all things in history, even powers which seek to depose you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was reading a quote where it said that we worry because we do not believe that God is in control. We become bitter when we believe that God is out of control. And we fear because we believe that God has lost control. And I think that uh, this trinity of worry, bitterness, fear, are emotions that as many Christians we struggle with. And these are struggles which are enemies of our faith. When we worry, we are bitter at what God has done to us in the world. When we fear because we believe God has lost control, we lose faith. And I think that for myself, I experience those things. I'm sure all of us have experienced worry, bitterness, fear. I was watching a movie just last week with my family. Uh, I'd like to recommend it to you, you know, the movie Inside Out. Right, has any of you seen it? I'm the purple guy, the really fearful guy in the, in the mind there, right? So, But I think that there's so much to fear, really, as a Christian these days. Uh, when you read the newspaper, you look at things that are happening in the Middle East for Christians there. You look at uh, people who are in the West as Christians, they are facing as well persecution. And uh, even for ourselves in Singapore, we may face difficulties and hardships from people around us. So today, as we refer back to the Bible, uh, I think it really speaks to us within that context, that context of fear, worry and bitterness. Now today, as we look at Daniel chapter 7, we come to a bit of a milestone in the study of the book of Daniel, because if you'll notice, Daniel chapter 7 to the end of the chapter is different from Daniel chapter 1 to chapter 6. It's different not because it is not God's word, but it's different because the genre of the Bible of Daniel is different. So in chapter 1 to chapter 6, it was mainly historical narrative. right? It was, it was a story form. So even, yes, there were dreams, there were visions, but, but they were really part of the story. They made up part of the story itself. Today, as we look at Daniel chapter 7, we are focusing very much instead on visions and dreams and messages from God. And, and as we look at this, we are looking at what many people call the apocalyptic now, apocalyptic, uh, I guess, in the world that we live in, can be seen in a very bad light. Right? We think of apocalyptic and we think of some crazy-eyed madman with a long, droopy beard, with you know, saliva dripping down his beard, you know, screaming away to the crowd saying the world is going to end tomorrow. I remember reading in the newspaper of how there's a new TV show coming about some Christian guy who hears voices in his head and becomes some serial killer. Okay, So, in the world that we live in, the idea of apocalyptic seems to be associated with these sort of crazy, fanatical, religious people. But actually, apocalyptic in the Bible is just a type of literature, as a genre of literature, where God gives visions of the future. God gives visions of what is to come. And symbolism and numbers then become very important in apocalyptic literature. And some things are left deliberately vague and imprecise. There's an elusiveness to what is actually being communicated. So I think that as we read Daniel chapter 7, because it is apocalyptic literature, 
we can be very certain and very uh, confident of the general thrust of the message of the vision of the dream. But I think we need to be a bit more careful when we try to press home uh, exact details of who this person is or when this thing is because of the nature of apocalyptic literature. Now it begins in chapter 7 verse 1 where in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. And after that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. Now here as we look at uh, Daniel, it begins by giving us the setting of when Daniel had this dream. If you if you were paying attention, you'll see that we've gone backwards in time. Because when we read chapter 7, it was different from chapter 6, where in chapter 6 it was at the end of King Belshazzar's time. But now we come to the beginning Okay, so if you look at this, we're going to have quite a few slides today, so it'd be good if you could pay attention. So King Belshazzar was here, 553 to 539 BC. At the end of chapter 6, we actually ended up here, but now we're going back to the beginning at 553 BC. And I think that this is very important because it shows us that the dream that Daniel has is not unconnected, right? It's not disconnected with what Daniel is experiencing in his life situation. And what is the life situation of Daniel? Okay, so the life situation of Daniel was... Next slide. Oh, sorry, this is just bigger for those of you who can't see. Okay, next slide. The life situation was that Daniel had been taken away from Jerusalem together with his friends and they'd been put in the capital Babylon. So, in a, in a reminder to us, here were God-fearing Jewish people who were in the context of uncertainty, fear... They were pawns of a great power, Babylon. There were pieces in history. And I think this context is very important because, oops, context is very important because in the very next scene we see that in the vision that Daniel has, it tells us that he sees the four winds of heaven churning up this great sea. Right now, for me, I love the sea. The sea for me is the best place to go for holidays, you know. If I could go on holidays and I could choose it myself instead of my family, I would always be at the beach, right? Okay. So for me, this is the vision of sea for me. Okay. So don't worry about those people there. They're just blocking the picture, right? Okay. Okay. So whenever I feel stressed, whenever I feel tired, whenever I feel, you know, life is not worth living or whatever, I think of the sea, right? I want to go to the sea. But the sea which is described here is not that sort of sea. It is a sea which is an angry sea, a hostile sea. Four winds of heaven are churning up the great sea. And this is a picture of the sea that, that we are supposed to envision here. And out of this chaos, out of this menace, 
out of this hostile sea comes four great beasts. Right? These four great beasts, which are really quite hostile and terrifying in terms of what they appear to be doing. Now, if you look at verse 15, verse 15 is actually the interpretation of what Daniel sees. So verse 15, Daniel sees the dream, then he goes and asks God, what is this I'm seeing? And then in verse 15 and 16, he is told, the great four beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So really the sea is a picture of the world that Daniel is living in. It is a world which is dark, unpredictable, full of chaos, menacing and hostile. That is what the sea represents and that is the world that Daniel is living in. And out of this chaotic sea, out of this chaotic world comes four beasts. And these four beasts are any are not less reassuring than the vision of the sea that he sees because these 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 beasts are like the dreams of a horror movie, right? Uh, a lion right, with eagle's wings. It's like a bear. It's like a leopard. But in many ways, because we see that Daniel's dream is of four kingdoms, it's really linked with many in many ways with the four kingdoms that that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt about. Okay, so there's many connections here between Daniel seven and what we've read before. So. In, in the next slide, remember in, in Daniel chapter 2, what was the vision and the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar saw? He saw four kingdoms. About four kingdoms made of different materials in this great statue. So in many ways, the next slide, the, the beast and the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has are sort of interconnected and linked. They're not exactly the same, as we will see, but they're linked in many ways the dream of Nebuchadnezzar with the four kingdoms and the vision which was given to Daniel of the four beasts. But you'll notice here that when we read of the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, it was, it was really focused a lot on what was going to happen, the sequence of the kingdoms, right? I mean, there's nothing very menacing about the statue. It's just a statue made out of different materials, gold, silver, and, and bronze and all that sort of stuff. But it's almost as if in the dream of Daniel, what changes now is that he's looking at it from a different angle, like a, like a crystal ball. You know, you look at it from a different angle, you see a different refraction of light. And here we are told of the nature of these kingdoms. And these kingdoms are not benign, neutral, friendly kingdoms. These are hostile, scary, violent, and unpredictable kingdoms. And that's why they are visualized in such frightening forms. And I think the first thing we're supposed to realize is that we live, just as Daniel did, in a very dark and unpredictable and hostile world. I remember for myself, uh, before I became a Christian, I used to think like the world was my oyster, right? And I used to read the newspaper every day and, and nothing in the newspaper really bothered me. You know, people are dying all over. Well, oh, well that's okay. You know, they're suffering and, and everything. That's okay. Before I was a Christian, if you ask my friends to describe me, you know, what's Andrew like? They'll say, oh, Andrew, he's a really happy-go-lucky guy with no worries. I was living for this world. I was living in this world. And I was living off of this world. 
there was no fear of the world in me. But after I became a Christian, I remember my mom said one of the most interesting things to me. She said, you know, ever since you became a Christian, you're no longer this happy-go-lucky guy now. You seem pretty depressed. And I think what happened was, as I became a Christian, the things that I lived for, the values I had, and the outlook I had for the world became very different. So that when I opened the newspaper, a lot of the things which I used to ignore now really bothered me. Because I saw that the world was a very hostile and dark place, especially to God. Uh, when I open the newspaper, I see sin. I see suffering. And I, 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 I grieve for people who are suffering. I see evil. I see opposition to God. And the world was no longer my, my oyster, but rather the world was a dark place where as a Christian, as I grew more and more to understand God and more and more to be like Jesus, I felt like the world was living in opposition to me. And I think this is the context of what Daniel is really seeing here. What he's seeing here is a world which is dark and chaotic and hostile and unpredictable. And out of this world comes all these kingdoms which in themselves are hostile and terrifying and difficult. Now, as we look at these uh, powerful kingdoms, what does Daniel actually see? What, what, you know, why doesn't he just say, hey, I just saw these four creatures, right, which were scary? How do these creatures link back to what Nebuchadnezzar saw? What do they do in terms of telling him about world history? Well, first of all, we saw that the first creature in verse 4 was like a lion and had wings like an eagle. But then the poor guy, right, the wings were torn off and then he's lifted off the ground to look like a human being given a mind of a human. Now again, as we've been reading the book of Daniel, this should ring bells of us. This should sort of say, hey, this, this reminds us of somebody. Who does it remind us of? It reminds us of King Nebuchadnezzar, where, remember, he, he, he exalted himself against God. Remember, he was walking on the, the ceiling. Well, not ceiling, you can't walk on the ceiling. Sorry, that's not right. You walk on the roof. He walked on the roof of his palace and he looked around. He said, you know, I am so great. I'm the greatest. And God humbled him. And God made him look and live like a beast in the field. Remember, he, had, he grew long fingernails and hair like a wild man. He ate grass and he lived in the dew of the wilderness. This is a picture here of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the lion but had his wings torn off. Right? He was humbled by God. And then the next vision is that of a bear. And what a weird bear it is because he sort of got a hump on one side. And he had three ribs in his mouth, and this guy seems to have an insatiable appetite. I mean, he's still got food in his mouth, and he's still asked to eat some more. Right? It reminds me of some young people. Right? You know, you're eating away every day, and you want to know what else is there to eat. And I think here, if we link it back to what we've read in Daniel chapter 2, this is a picture of the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire which came after Babylon. So if you look at this map, okay, so... Um, here was the Babylonian Empire, okay, which was the first beast because it represents uh, Nebuchadnezzar in many ways. This is the second empire, if you can see. Next one. Okay, this is the Media, Media Persian Empire. And one thing you'll notice is, it, it, go back again to the other slide. 
Okay, go again now, the next one. You notice how much bigger it is than the Babylonian Empire? It's really, really big. Right? And it's made up of two empires, the Medial Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was the bigger part of, of the empire. So many people say, well, this bear, which has got one side bigger, is actually, is actually representing the Medo Persian Empire because the Persian side was the bigger side. And this empire was characterized by expansion and conquest. It was twice as big as the Babylonian Empire. The next beast is the picture of a leopard. Okay, picture of a leopard. Now, one of the characteristics of a leopard was the leopard was like the fastest animal uh, in, I guess, the ancient Near East. That was the fastest animal that they could envision. And for many people, the next empire, which was the Greek Empire, was was characterized by speed. Right. So if you look at the next slide, here is the is the empire of Alexander the Great, and you see this is very big, right? Uh, by the age of 32, Alexander the Great had conquered all this territory. Right? It's like he just swept through the known world of that day and he conquered it in swift and speedy terms. Can you imagine by the age of 32, you, you, you're, you're the ruler of all this. Okay, That's how fast it was. Now, when we look at these great empires and we look at it, when you stand back, you think, well, that's all very impressive. But I think that for the God-fearing Jews who lived during that time, it would have been a very scary, uncertain time. Because you have these kingdoms, one after another, coming through with great appetite, great speed, and overturning your world. But if you look at this passage, what it's actually telling us from verse 4 to verse 6 is as great and as powerful, as chaotic, as fearsome, as hostile as these Kingdoms are the lion, eagle, the bear, and the leopard. They are all controlled by God. See, look at the language of verse 4 to verse 6. It is all in the passive. God strips off the wings of the eagle. God tells the bear to get up and eat. The beast, which is like the leopard, was given authority to rule. See, in every way, what is being told here is that as great as these kingdoms are, as fearsome as they are, for the believer of God, look and see that God is actually the one who gives them the authority to rule. You know, apparently there was a uh, there was a church. You know, a lot of churches have these banners outside, you know, like quirky banners. And outside this church was a banner which says, Harry is not the potter. God is. Okay? And I think that's very true, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, Harry is not the one who controls the world, Harry Potter, right? But God is the one who shapes and molds the events of this world. And that's what's happening here. When we look at this passage, we're meant to see that as fearsome as these kingdoms are, God is the one who allows them these authorities. God is the one who gives them the power to do this. And God is the one who allows another kingdom to take over. And I think this is so important for us because many times we live in world history, when we live in our world, we look at the events of the world and we despair. We see people getting beheaded in the Middle East. We see our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world being persecuted. We fear for ourselves. Maybe we look even to closer neighbors 
uh, you know, just neighbors around us, and we look at other Christians, and we fear for what's happening in the world. But we need to understand that God is the God who controls all things and allows these things to happen. In the talk that I heard last week by this guy called Ravi Zacharias, he's a very uh, famous evangelist, his, the title of his talk was God, the Grand Weaver. And I thought that was very appropriate because he said that God is like a God who weaves history. And the problem is for us, because we are standing behind the tapestry, we can't see what God is doing. All right, so you know, it's like, okay, when you stand behind a tapestry, all you see is a mess of threads of different colors. It's like a confusion, a riot of threads, and you don't understand what God is doing. But it's only when you, next slide, when you turn the, 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 the tapestry over, that you are able to then see that there's a pattern to what God is doing. And I think what this dream and vision that is given to Daniel is for us to understand and to go to the other side of the tapestry and to understand that God has a plan and God is doing things and that God is in control and that God has a, a wonderful vision in terms of what He's doing, even though it's scary for us. Now this is all the more important because if we thought that the first three beasts or the first three kingdoms were scary, then the last beast is truly terrifying even to Daniel. So in verse 7, it says, After that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful it had large iron teeth and it crushed and devoured its victims. It trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other former beasts and had ten horns. And while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came out among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And even more so, if you look at verse 19, right? You notice if we want to spend more time looking at Daniel chapter 7, you know that actually Daniel doesn't seem particularly interested in the first three beasts. When he asks for the interpretation, please note that he doesn't actually ask for the interpretation. Hey, what did the first three beasts mean? He doesn't care about the first three beasts. What he really wants to know is, what is the last beast all about? Because the last beast is what really scared him. And we will see in verse 19 why it was so scary. Because in verse 19, this fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with iron teeth and bronze claw, this beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head, about the other horn that came out, before which three others, three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others and that eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And verse 21 is what makes Daniel the most worried. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them. Right? And in verse 25, right, it says there, This horn will speak against the Most High and oppress His holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into His hands for a time, times, and half a time. You see, the first three kingdoms didn't seem to have anything particularly against God's people. But what makes this fourth beast very, very scary is that it seems 
to deliberately focus on God and God's people, to challenge God and God's people. If you look actually at verse 7 to verse 8, the language which is used to describe this fourth beast is different from the other three. It is described by active verbs, not passive verbs. Everything that the beast does, that fourth beast, it does on its own accord. It chooses to do something, it does it. It wants to devour something, it devours it. It wants to crush something, it crushes it. It doesn't seem to ask God for permission, or God doesn't seem to be able to control it. And this beast seems to be extremely powerful. It had ten horns, right? Now horns, if you look here on the next slide, are representative in the Bible of power, of kingship. Because in many ways, the horns of an animal are representative of, I guess, power, I guess, virility, right? Strength. Now we know here from this vision that this last beast had ten horns which represent ten kings. But it's not just ten kings, right? It is power multiplied by ten in many ways. It's like in Daniel chapter 1, if you remember, how were Daniel and his friends described in terms of their IQ? God made them ten times smarter than all the other wise people in Babylon. Remember I said that? Now, not literally that they became ten times smarter. I mean, like, if your IQ is already a hundred, you can't become, like, one thousand, right? Because the scale is only at two hundred, right? It's like, you're just a lot smarter. It's like, if I say to you, hey, you know, I'm, I'm ten times better than you, it doesn't mean I'm ten times literally better than you. I'm just better than you. And I think what's being said here is that this beast with its ten horns and its ten kings, seems to have limitless power. In fact, it seems to have so much power that it seems to rival God. Look at what it says there when I read to you in verse 25. Right, It, it speaks against God and oppresses His holy people. In verse 21, it says it defeats them. But yet this, this beast seems to be able to change set times and the laws. Now, in chapter 1 to chapter 6, the main characteristic of God is that God is in control of time, of history, of destiny. This beast seems so powerful that it seems to be able to, to determine its own destiny, its own time, its own history. It seems to make up its own laws. And within the history of this last beast, the little horn seems to be the most problematic picture of all. The little horn with the eyes of a man and a mouth that boasts. See, if you look at um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, which is up here. Did I get that right? Yep. It speaks of how the world can be characterized by the cravings of a sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. See, the world here is characterized by pride, lust, cravings, sin. And this horn, this little horn, which sort of like, you know, it's like your baby teeth being displaced by this mature teeth, seems to, to characterize and epitomize all of this world which rises up against God in pride and boasting and arrogance. 
And as a result, it targets God's people. Right? It defeats God's people or oppresses them. Now, if it was hard to live under the three beastly kingdoms, then, then how hard must it be to live under this fourth beast? Because under this fourth beast, it must surely mean that faith gives way to fear. That faith cowers in terror before this kingdom. That faith melts away and becomes to nothing. Now here I think as we look at this last beast, we are moving slightly away from what happens in Daniel chapter 2. Because I think in many ways this last beast is an, uh, there's an elusiveness to it. I don't think it's just in the immediate history in the Roman Empire. I think it's a picture that stretches on to, to our time and the times that come because it represents almost a type of a beast, a type of a kingdom. And the little horn represents a type of a king, which in different times, different generations, different seasons of life continue to come and to plague and to haunt and to oppress God's people through different generations. Now, how are we to live, or how are Christians, or how are God's people able to live when they are faced with such an oppressive kingdom, one which is out to destroy them, one which is so powerful and malevolent? Well, actually, if we look closely, if you look at verse 25 again, tell me, I mean, we just read that three times, but sometimes we miss it, huh? It actually tells us that, oops, hello? It actually tells us that God allows His holy people to be delivered into the hands of this little horn for a time, times, and half a time. Now this is especially important because it is no longer in the active language, but in the passive language again. God is the one who allows his people to be oppressed and defeated by this little horn. And it will only be for a time, times, and half a time. Now what does that really mean? Well, if you look at your footnote, I have a footnote here in my NIV Bible. It says for a year, two years, and half a year. Time, times, and half a times. So it's one plus two plus a half which is equal to three and a half, right? It's equal to three and a half. Now, remember I said before that apocalyptic numbers are very important. So we know that in the Bible, the number seven is probably the most important number of all the numbers in the Bible. You know, the world was created in seven days. Israel was exiled for 70 years. Right? Seven is very important. So what does three and a half stand for? Well, three and a half stands for half of Perfection, half of completion, half of completeness. So actually what it's saying here is that even though there's lots of suffering, intense suffering, it seems like a very long time, but it will not be the completeness of time. It will be a limited time, half of completeness. It will seem like a long time. It will not be an insignificant time, but it will end. It will come to an end. And I think this is very important for us because... When we look at Christians in concentration camps in North Korea, when we see Christians beheaded in Iraq, when we see extreme social pressure in many Christians, 
against many Christians. We have to recognize that in the end, God is in control and God has given them into suffering. But their suffering will end one day. And as we look at this picture, that promise of the end of the suffering is seen at the last part of Daniel's vision. Because in verse 9, as all these things are happening, as the beast is coming, as the suffering is here, what happens? As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire, its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority and were allowed to live for a period of time. Now what happens here? It's like there's almost a parallel picture. It's almost as if while on earth the beast is doing this great destruction, at the same time, judgment is happening. Right? Judgment is happening. The court scene is happening at the same time. And this court scene is convened by God himself. God is seen with divine wisdom, total purity and absolute power. And when the books are open. The beasts and all who oppress God's people are found to be guilty. And it says there that this beast was destroyed and was thrown into the blazing fire. Now again, this picture of blazing fire tells us of the future orientation of this vision. It's not just Daniel's immediate uh, you know, picture. It's not just uh, the king, the little horn, who was thrown into the fire. No, it's, it's a picture of Eternal judgment. You see, if you look in the Bible, often when the idea of fire, eternal fire, blazing fire is used, it's often used as a picture of eternal judgment. So Matthew chapter 25, it says, Then he will say to those who are on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. The dead and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Is anyone's, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. You notice here the similarities in terms of the symbolism in the vision, the book, the fire. So here we see that the beast and the little horn are destined for eternal judgment. And I think that as we look in history, many commentators have seen the, the fourth beast and the little horn in many different times in history. So if you look here on this timeline, so for many people, uh, the the first manifestation of this fourth beast was in the Seleucid Kingdom, where this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes came 
and in 165 uh, BC destroyed the temple. But also before that, he he basically banned uh, all worship of God, and he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem to his god, uh, King uh, the god Zeus, and he had his own sacrifices done in the temple, and he burned God's books. Some other people, next slide. Okay, this is the Roman uh, Empire. Say that is this guy? Where has he gone now? I can't see when it's so small now. Hmm. Ah, hold on. Okay, next one. Okay, is this guy Vespasian? Apparently, Vespasian was also someone who was very anti-God. Uh, he destroyed the temple during this time, and uh, it was a, a very difficult time to be God's people. But I think that all these are all forerunners, and they point to, I guess, what Revelation says is the Antichrist, which ultimately comes to stand against God. But what God tells us here, right at Daniel chapter 7, is that even as all these things are happening, we are not to despair, we're not to give way, we're not to give up hope in God, but to see that God is still in control, that even though all these things are happening, God is already judging God has already opened his books. God has already sentenced the four beasts and the little horn. But what's important is in verse 13 and 14 is that the vision doesn't end with just judgment and hell, but it ends with a vision of God's everlasting kingdom. If my vision at night, in verse 13 it says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, we could preach a whole sermon just on these two verses because it is one of the I guess, purple phrases or purple verses in the Old Testament, which is repeated over and over again in the New Testament. See, when Jesus comes, what does he keep referring himself to? He doesn't refer to himself as the Christ. He keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is not saying that he is a human, but the Son of Man is actually a title which goes back to Daniel chapter 7, which refers to himself a self-referential title as the one who who brings the kingdom of God into the world. So you look at how, if you look at this slide here, how we we um, we did this for our responsive reading, and, and Psalm chapter two it speaks of how one who's God's son will be appointed to receive the the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as a possession. See, Daniel chapter 7 says the same thing, sees the same thing, looks forward to the same thing. And this is fulfilled because Jesus is that son. See, in Matthew chapter 24, look at what Jesus says about himself. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. In Matthew chapter 5, it says, 
When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in the heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Again, Matthew chapter 26, as He was being questioned by the high priest. But Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to Him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and the coming of the clouds of heaven. See, Daniel 7 ends with a glorious, majestic vision, not of judgment, but of God's Son, the Son of Man, who inherits the kingdom and brings an eternal kingdom which will far surpass and put to shame all those kingdoms which come before it. Now, I know that this vision is somewhat difficult, difficult to wrestle with, difficult to understand, but it's especially important for us to really understand what's happening here. See, this passage is not about our prosperity, This passage has got nothing to say about how God is going to bless us by good health or, you know, satisfy our wants today. In fact, it's got nothing to do with with us at all, isn't it? Uh, It's got nothing to do with Daniel. I can can imagine Daniel saying, you know, this vision, uh, what's it got to do with me, you know? I want to know what's going to happen to me. It is a vision of the bigger scope of history, right? It spans eternity. And it wants to tell us that God is the grand weaver. He controls time. He controls people. He controls kingdoms. And he's trying to say, through Daniel to us, know me. Know my power. Know my plans. If you know me and my power, my plans, trust me and have faith in me because you will live in dark, dangerous and chaotic times. And if you know me, you will hold on to me. See, part of the problem, I think, as I look at the church today, all around the world, is that the church and many Christians don't know God. They don't know the power of God. They don't know the plan of God because they're only interested in the plan of God for themselves. And as a result, we are we are faced with many weak churches and weak Christians who in the face of the beast, in the face of the kingdoms of the world, in the face of the pressures of this world, cower and conform to the demands of the world. They cannot, they will not, and they do not hold on to God in faith. They make compromises, they bend to the will of God, they do not stand before God. Now, I was reading this book. Um, I still have to return to Simpson someday, but I've underlined it already, so it's a bit late. But um, he lent me this book about Hitler and the cross, and, and I, I find it to be very helpful, uh, even though I've read it before, I, to, to quote from, because in many ways, in our time, I suppose, I mean, we could always point to Stalin or Mao, but I think Hitler comes close to being a, a very good little horn. And I guess the Third Reich comes very close to being a perfect fourth beast as well. Because for many years, I mean, Nazi Germany was like the 
the terrible force on this world, terrible kingdom. And, and Hitler uh, recognized very early on that in German society, the only force that was able to withstand his appeal was the church. So he set out very deliberately, if you read from this book, right, from historical records, to undermine the church, both from within and without. And this is what uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a very, very famous German theologian. He was very brave. He was actually living in, uh, in New York, in London, and he decided to go back to Germany to lead the church because he felt that someone had to stand up to Hitler. And uh, when... Um, when many Christians were faltering under Hitler, he stood firm. So Hitler uh, banned people from patronizing Jewish shops. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer went with his family, even his grandmother, to boldly go in front of the, the, the German soldiers, the, what do you call them again? Those, the, the, the SS, that's right. The SS people, and go into the Jewish shops to go grocery shopping. When Hitler corrupted the theology of the church, he stood up before the other pastors at the, the synod meeting and, 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 and condemned Hitler until uh, somebody turned off the microphone and pulled him off the stage. And uh, when uh, Hitler convinced Christians to send Jews to the gas chamber, uh, Bonhoeffer condemned him. Now, why is it so many Germans, because at that stage, Germany was a majority, I mean, it was a Christian country. It was a Lutheran country, right? Must be something wrong with the Lutheran church. Okay, no, no, it's not. Okay. Okay, why is it they couldn't stand up to, to, to Hitler when they were 100%, I mean, they were a Christian country? Well, this is what he says. Bonhoeffer exaggerated, I don't know how he speaks so loud, so cheap the word, exaggerated the church of his day. We Lutherans have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace. And there we have drunk the poison which has killed the life of following Jesus. The church was weak because it had misunderstood grace. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jack wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sins, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. In such a church, the world finds cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace means justification of faith without the justification of the sinner. It is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And I think that makes a very good point, isn't it? Because ultimately we live in a time where people come to, to Jesus, but they don't realize that it means that there must be suffering and discipleship, cost and a genuine willingness not to conform to this world. It really saddens me because I remember when I was working and even today when I meet some people, uh, I see people who are able and willing are very happy to say that they speak in tongues, but they're not willing to call sexual immorality a sin against God. Right? I see people who are very happy to say that they're blessed by God, but they're not willing to call abortion murder. I remember at work, there are people I know who used to go to church every Sunday, but they were unwilling to, to say that they were Christians at work. 
I have friends of mine who went to church on Sunday, but they were unwilling to apply the Christian principles in their workplace. I have friends of mine who went to church who were willing to share the good news of Jesus, even at Christmas time. See, we live in a time of cheap grace where people think that they can be Christians without standing up for Christ. But I think the Bible tells us, and Daniel 7 warns us, that we live in a dark world. But if we know God and we know the plan of God, we will stand firm in Him. Where there is no discipleship, there is no grace. Where there is no cross-carrying, there is no salvation. Where there is no cost, there is no glory. Now, I'm not saying we should try harder, don't fear, don't despair, don't fret. But what we need to know today is a pure vision of the reality of God's power, of God's plan, of God's purposes. We have seen God, the grand weaver. We have seen the tapestry. We have seen God's God's great destiny for all of us. But we need to keep trusting in it and holding on to it through the dark days that we live in as we become more and more like Christ in a world which more and more hates God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, fill us with a great understanding of your power, of your majesty, of your sovereign control, so that we may be able to see a vision the picture of the tapestry which you, the grand weaver, have weaved. That you are in control of the kingdoms of this world. That even the sufferings that we undergo are only happening because you have allowed it to happen. Dear Father, when we fear, when we worry, when we become bitter, help us to see that it's not because you have lost control, but rather because we have not had enough faith in your plan. Dear Father, as we know you more and more, may we always stand firm in you, not moving an inch from our allegiance to you, because surely you will judge and throw into the fiery lake all who rebel against you and rebel and challenge you. But at the same time, your promise is that the Son of Man has inherited your kingdom and that he will come again and we will rise up together with him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.